Okay, well, we are in 1 Samuel, so turn there, and really a um, low moment, a not discouraging, but definitely more a, a, a more despondent um, narrative as we saw got the prophecy that God had given Eli and his sons because of the of their lack of um, honoring God appropriately and making light of worship and light of his things. Um, God condemned them to judgment. The sons of um, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas would lose their lives, and Eli's line, really the, the Levitic line of the priesthood, would be diminished after this, um, the line of Eli, and we're going to see more of that. Why? Uh, the, the, the Levitic priesthood line at this point in Israel's history is really not doing very well, and we'll see more of that in a little bit. Well, it came to pass um, through the uh, ancient enemy of the Israelites, the Philistines, um, they lost the, that the Israelites lost the Ark of the Covenant in a very dramatic way. Um, word came back to Eli, and it shocked him so much that he fell back in his chair and broke his neck and died immediately. But uh, to finish out the, the terrible narrative, um, Phineas's wife was about to bear their child and heard the news and um, be, uh, began to give birth early prematurely. And right before she dies, she names the child Ichabod. And that means the glory of the Lord has departed. And kind of, this is a very sad end to the time of the judges, but it certainly, unfortunately, is fitting because the period of the judges has been described as everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They did not give weight and honor to the Lord in the way that they should have. And all the way back in Moses' time, they were warned that punishment would come. And this was the final outgrowth of that for Eli's family and for Israel, really, as the glory of the Lord literally departs in the form of the Ark of the Covenant away from them. Notice the focus has turned. We've had a focus on Samuel. And now, even today, we're going to be talking about the Ark of the Covenant. It's gone from Samuel directly to the Lord himself. And how the Lord's going to just kind of take over the narrative and handle everything throughout uh, the passage that we're going to look at tonight. So uh, the Ark of the Covenant was just mentioned. We started talking about this last week, and we saw some pictures of that. The Ark of the Covenant was about three and three-quarter feet by two and a quarter. Not a very big box, but obviously very important. The Ark of the Covenant, we talked last week about what it housed the law or, or the Ten Commandments, um, Aaron's blossoming uh, rod, the manna. And really, there was a lot of things that the Ark of the Covenant represented. It represented the rule of God, the very presence of God. It represented his speaking, his revelation to them, the Ten Commandments being there. It also, if you'll remember, was re also referred to as the mercy seat. Why? because the priest would go in and sprinkle the blood in between the cherubs for um, forgiveness uh, of sin. And um, so forgiveness was an important aspect, but also leading. The Ark of the Covenant would lead the people as well. 
So Ark of the Covenant, obviously very important. The presence of God. And everybody at the end of this narrative last week realized that it truly was a tragedy. The real tragedy, it was recognized by Eli, by his daughter-in-law, by Israel, was not even the deaths. And remember, there was, there was the deaths of many warriors and in Hophni and Phinehas, but the greatest loss was God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant. And that banner, that word, that phrase that um, Phineas's wife used as she's bearing their child, the glory of the Lord has departed, is very sobering. I was just thinking of some applications. How would we apply that today to our situation? Well, we certainly don't have the Ark of the Covenant. We'll talk more in another lesson about what might have happened to the Ark of the Covenant. That might be distracting tonight. It's kind of interesting. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant today. Um, so does it apply? Well, the glory of the Lord in one sense can't depart from the believer because the Holy Spirit resides in, inside him. And so we really can't apply it in that way. Although I do think there's maybe a secondary application that um, we can make light of God's presence and actually distance ourselves and find out like Israel is going to find out what it's like to live life away from the felt presence of God when we harbor sin um, that we should confess. There is that barrier and there's that loss of relationship. But I do think with our churches in particular that this is still a possibility. The glory of the Lord has departed. How could that be? I think all the way at the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where Jesus is um, has some messages for the many of the current churches as he comes on the scene in his revelation before the apostle john and remember he gives them warnings many of those churches warnings that he will literally snuff out their light and in that sense i think today that the church needs to be careful if they don't take if we don't as village chapel baptist church take the things of the lord as sobering and as responsibly as we should if they're not serious to us if worshiping our god is not serious following after god's principles making sure that the world is not evident in our worship um, that is not seeped in if we don't take these things seriously even our prayer time tonight that we're going to have it's a form of worship do we seriously as we come together and pray do we believe that god is there or like the israelites is, is, has just become just a symbol to us, getting together, meeting together, but we really forget the meaning that God's presence is with us. In our giving, in our singing, we just had an opportunity to sing. Does God's glory have weight in our lives? If we're not taking as a church the things of God seriously, then literally that could be said of us. God could take us, snuff out our light. The glory of the Lord has departed. It could happen. So a sobering warning for all of us. Um, there is a great, there's a book here that I found helpful. And I'd recommend this as far as, a, we'll say the layman's commentary of books of the Bible. I don't know that everyone is, is the same value, but this one is First Samuel. It's called um, The Focus on the Bible. And this one's done by Dale Ralph Davis. This guy writes in, in enlightening just a whimsical style, and I'm going to quote some things from him 
tonight. He had a very good quote about this. When the church stops confessing, thou art worthy, and begins chanting, thou art useful, well, then you know the ark of God has been captured again. I thought that was uh, an interesting way of putting that. But there is something interesting as well that's going on here, and it's going to continue to happen. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas are removed from leadership, and God at this point is removing false shepherds who are causing his people to stray. And Samuel is going to come in and has come in as the focus, and God is removing all these leaders who have made light of him all these years. And Samuel is now the one that's respected, and he's going to come back into the picture later on, not tonight. We'll see that later. So um, the, the ark of the Lord has departed from Israel, but don't worry about God. Um, God's not in any trouble at all. The ark of the Lord can take care of itself, and God can take care of himself. There's no reason for concern about him. The God of Israel, as we're about to see here in, um, in a 1 Samuel um, chapter 5, verse 5. Hold on a second here. Let's make, I'm going to make sure I've got the right, in my notes here, I've got the right reference on that, that I'm not thinking two different chapters. Um, yes, 5, verse 1. We're going to see that God of Israel can fully handle his enemies all by himself. Israel should have been more concerned about the absence of the presence of God more than the ark as an object. But let's see what happens here. Remember, the Philistines have the ark. And what they're going to do is they're going to treat the ark as just another conquest. And they're going to place it in the midst of their temple, of their God, as kind of treating the ark of the covenant as they would many times. As, as they would capture enemy um, combatants and things, they would bring the leaders and sometimes they would have them serve and, and serve in the temple of their God. So they're going to have the Ark and the Covenant in their mind kind of serving as a servant attendant to their God, Dagon. Now, Dagon, the Philistine God, we really don't aren't for sure what kind of all the attributes and what was going on here with this God. There was a long there was a thought for a long time. Archaeologists thought that this was some sort of fish god that had the upper torso and face of a fish, if you can even imagine that, and arms and legs and the lower body of a man. Uh, they've kind of moved away from that with current archaeological evidence. Probably more of a harvest god that they expected. They went to Dagon as their main god and um, expected that he would provide harvest for them. As an agricultural community like Israel, that was really important to them. And so they think that they're going to have the God of Israel serve Dagon. Well, they're in for a surprise. And God is going to make it clear who's going to bow before who. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. And the Philistines took or captured the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod, Ashdod is one of the major, probably the major city in, Philist, in Philistia. And when they arose up early on the next, the, the next morning, tomorrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen. Or verse three, um, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth. 
while the ark before the ark of the Lord. So who is worshiping who here? God says, I will not serve another God, and you will bow before me, Dagon. And so, as actually all pagans have to do with their gods, they were embarrassed by this. And even their all-powerful God, they even have to give him a little help in getting him to sit back upright. You know, you can't express your God as all-powerful. It's really hard to do that when you literally have to set him back up again and put him upright in the right position, right? <laughs> That's kind of hard. It's a hard sell that he's an all-powerful harvest God in that way. So they took Dagon and they set him in his place again. We'll just help you out a little bit. By the way, I should say, that really, um, all in all paganism, the gods are dependent upon man is interesting. No matter what religion you go to, the gods are in some way that they worship are dependent upon the men that worship them, which is another reason why it's so foolish. So Dagon is now found to be bowing before the ark, and they have to sit him back up. Well, they figure we'll give this thing another try. The next day they rise and they find their God even more extreme here. They actually find their God executed in the same fashion that they executed their enemies. God is dealing with these false gods all by himself. He doesn't need Israel's help. So look at verse 4. And when they arose early on the, next, on the morrow morning, the next morning, behold, again, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. He's bowing, but he's also been executed. And this is, the, this is from what we can tell from archaeological evidence. This was many times how the Philistines would treat their enemies horribly. But this is what would happen. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. And only the stump or the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Verse 5, therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. This began a custom, and it seems like this was a custom because the Philistines were very embarrassed to see their all-powerful God executed before the God of Israel. <laughs> um. And so they, they seem to come up with an excuse here. They decide that a lack of respect, that somehow as they entered into the temple, they had not shown their God the correct amount of respect. And so they weakened their own God's power. Some all-powerful God. But they, want, they give up this excuse so they'll enter in more carefully in the future. And it seems like they continue to do that till the, the writer was writing at this time. But they'll avoid anything to give credit to the God of Israel. Another quote from this book, Dagon is simply getting the godness knocked right out of him, is what this one author says. Another thing that he points out here I thought was good, um, the God of the Bible does not need us. And that is this what we're, we're, we see here is God didn't need his people. He loved his people. He wanted his people. He wanted that relationship. But he doesn't need them. And we need to remember, God doesn't rely on us today. He doesn't need us. He does love us. He does want relationship with us. But let's be clear who's all-powerful and who's needful of whom. And God points out as clear here that he needs no one. He's fine on his own. Well, 
what do you do when your God has been humiliated before the other nation's gods? They thought that they had the upper hand, but God's going to continue to make them even more aware of just how powerless they are. And he's going to make things very uncomfortable for this Philistine enemy. Again, is God able to take care of his own enemies without any help from us at all? Well, certainly. Look at verse 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them, and smote them, the King James says, with emeralds. Probably best to think of this as some sort of tumor. There's all kinds of ideas about this, what this could be. From the evidence that we continue to read of here, I, I think um, it, it's really kind of vague, but it seems to be tumors. And he smites them with these tumors, even Ashdod and the coast thereof, very damaging, very painful tumors. Now, what some scholars think this may be is actually the bubonic plague, which can erupt into tumors all over the body. We're going to see here in a minute why they think that's the case, but it's spread by mice, and that's very important for the data that we're going to see coming up here. I think probably this is a good, as good a... Um, suggestion as any that God uses some sort of bubonic plague to smite his enemies and make it clear who's all powerful and so verse 7 and when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so they said the ark of the God of Israel shall not abide or remain with us for his hand is hard upon us and upon Dagon our God now they're sounding a lot more humble there's a lot more humility in their voice now as they realize this is the all-powerful God, the God of the Israelites. And if we don't get him away from us, we are in big trouble. And so is our God. He's picking on our God. We got to do something here. We got to take care of him. What are we going to do? Well, if he's in your city and there's all kinds of difficult things going on, um, probably best to move him on. Now, let me show you here on a map. I have, uh, believe I have the ability to screen share. Yes, I do. Good. Now, if you'll see um, above here where the battle took place, Ebenezer, Aphek, and they would, the Philistines would have taken the Ark of the Covenant all the way down here to the coast near the coast Ashdod. That's a major metropolis. Let's say like um, New York City today. And they realize all the trouble and this awful, awful plague that's going on. And they say, let's get rid of it. Now, if in our country today is, is an illustration, let's, this may seem a little far-fetched, but I think it'll work for us. Let's say that we have one of our enemy nations gives us a gift and they send it to New York City. And it's a little device that's supposed to be a special gift to the American people and come to find out that actuality, it's a um, device of, of destruction that has radioactive activity, and it makes many, many hundreds of people sick, and many die. And those people in New York City say, we need to get this device out of our city as quick as possible. Now, as patriotic Americans, you would hope that they would be thinking out of our country and back to that enemy nation. Now, if they, if instead, instead of trying to get it out of country, what if New York City said, we got to get this out of our city, so let's just send this down to Philadelphia. They can deal with it. 
We've had it long enough. And let's say then Philadelphia still thinks it's a gift from an enemy nation and they're grateful for it. And all of a sudden the same thing starts happening, radioactive activity and all sorts of damage and um, health problems. And they say, whoa, we need to get rid of this. Instead of putting it out of country, they say, let's ship it on down to Baltimore and so on. Well, that wouldn't be very patriotic. Well, this is interesting here that the Philistines, instead of getting out of their country, they just pass it around to each other in their cities. <laughs> They're not really that concerned about their own countrymen, their own people. All they say is, let's just get it out of our city. Maybe, the, maybe we can get the people of Gath to take it. So if you notice here on the map, they send it to Gath and then to Ekron. And the people of Ekron finally wise up, as we're going to see here in a minute, and say, you're not sending that thing to our city. We know all about what's going on with this, and we certainly don't want to um, have thousands dead uh, and whatever because of, of this. So we're going to see that this is uh, going to be continued to pass on. If you'll notice in the map, by the end of our narrative today, it will end up in Beth Shemesh, which is right here. Um, and something will happen there to where they will decide that it needs to eventually uh, reside in Kiriath Jerem, which is where the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, will reside for uh, quite a while. That just gives you an idea here of where this is headed, okay? So that we have that up front. Now, I don't want to leave my map up for the whole time. I'll leave it up here for another minute while we go in, and then I'll, I'll bring myself back up. Um, so, these men in Ashdod. Um, verse 8, they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them. These are the, the leaders of the cities and probably the important people in Ashdod and said, what shall we do with the God of, with the ark of the God of Israel? And the other, these are political leaders, most likely they answered, let the ark of God be carried about unto Gath. Basically, the leaders of Ashdod said, get it out of our city and send it on to Gath. Maybe they'll take it. Good patriots there. And that's exactly what they did. They carried the ark of God about hither or about or there. They took it there. And it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against that city with a great destruction or the idea of panicking because the destruction and the disease is so great that throws that large city into a panic. Um, remember, that will be the city where a certain giant will come from eventually. But that, let's not get ahead of ourselves. And so, and it says here, and he smote the men of that city, both small and great. And they had these tumors in their secret parts, tumors all over their body. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Get it out of Gath. Let's send it on to Ekron here and they can deal with it. Very loving people, these Philistines. And it came to pass, as the ark of, the God, of God came to Ekron, the, the Ekronites cried out, saying, Wait a minute, you're not sending that thing here. They have brought about the ark of God of Israel to us to slay us. And, and our, oh, uh, okay, hold on here, I lost my place. Um, they have brought... Uh, about the ark of the God of Israel to slay us and our people. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines. Isn't it interesting? The people of Ekron have to do this. The people are more aware of what's going on than their leaders. 
you know, there's some parallel today to our current culture in this, <laughs> but the people call leaders and say, don't you even think about letting that thing stay here? Do you know what's happened? They sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send um, away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go again to his own place. Now, finally, some sense, some common sense in all this from the, the townsmen, the people. Get away from the political leaders here, and the people might actually have some common sense things to say. Send it back home to the Israelites. There's a thought that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction or panic throughout all the city. This was in Gath. They're, they're reminding what happened in Gath and Ashdod. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men that died not were spit, smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is very interesting. Notice those words, very heavy there. This is interesting in light of what we've just talked about. The enemy, the Philistines, these pagans, are, re, are realizing the heaviness of God's power. Do you realize the contrast here? The enemies of God are recognizing the heaviness of God's power in a way that his own people weren't even willing to recognize, could not even recognize. And that same word has been used um, for the people of Israel not treating with respect their own God, the God of Israel. In other words, right at this moment, these, these people of the land of Philistia are showing more reverence to God and more fear than his own people are. Remarkable. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. These enemy people are crying out in fear in God and, and, and in dismay. And God hears um, their prayers. And God moves on. Well, I don't know if they're praying or not, but he knows that they're struggling. So, Let's stop the share here. You, I, think, I think you get the idea from the map where we're headed. So I'm going to bring it back to me and bring up my notes here. So let's see what happens. In the midst of all this, we're in chapter six now. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. All this seems to have taken place over seven months time. And then the priests and the wise men of maybe seems like Ekron here, or maybe of all of the cities are finally sent for, you know, it's interesting here, this shows God's hand as well. And the number seven, the number seven many times was used in the Bible as a symbol of perfection. And God's hand is in this. Seven months, these people are being punished. God's enemies are being punished for not uh, worshiping, for, for trying to force him to worship a false god. The people of Philistia, of and the Philistines are getting some dramatic, drastic lessons on right worship of God. God's people got some severe, dramatic lessons about worship. God's enemies are now getting some severe, dramatic lessons about worship. And folks, today, again, as we continue to go through this, you can't miss this theme about worship. God's people should not be careless in their worship. Certainly, we don't worship false gods. We don't let anything take the place of worshiping God in our hearts. Can that happen, believers? It can. What 
important things do we allow into our lives that take the place of God? And therefore we, maybe we're not worshiping a fish God or a harvest God. We would never do that. That would be foolish. But I might worship a particular sport or a particular activity or a particular person. And God is in making it clear here that we dare not be careless in our worship. It's important to God's people. It's important to Village Chapel Baptist Church to make sure we're not going through the motions and still being careless and not really truly thinking through the, who the God is that we're worshiping. These are important lessons in worship that we're having here. But these um, Philistine leaders finally wisen up, verse 2, and the Philistines called for the priest and the, we'll say, it's either the diviners or the diviners, either it's, it's basically men that are spiritual leaders, maybe magicians or wise men, saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? The leaders seek advice. What should, what do they do with this ark? This obvious at this point, they need to get rid of it. And their spiritual leaders at this point are recognizing that they are under judgment, that the people, the, the, these enemies are under judgment and the wrath of Israel's God, as we're going to see here in a minute, they recognize this. And interestingly enough, they recognize that their errors must be appeased, that their pride in thinking that they could conquer Israel's God, that they were wrong in that. And so the spiritual leaders are going to say, this all-powerful God of Israel needs to be appeased and 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 especially um, they're going to focus on the rulers of these five important uh, Philistia cities um, that these men and perhaps the, the people as a whole were prideful and thinking they could conquer this God. We need to make amends. We need forgiveness from this God for thinking this way. So they decide to send along a gift here. We'll see this. Ten golden images, five of mice, and five of something else. This is really interesting. Let's read here. Verse 3. And they, the, these spiritual leaders said, If ye send away the ark of God of Israel, send it not empty, but in all wise, by any means, by all means, return to him a trespass offering. You know what that is? That's a guilt offering. Then ye shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed or does not turn away from you. And then they said, what shall the guilt offering be, which we shall return to him? These leaders have been humbled enough. They realize that they um, need to repent in some form or fashion for their pride and thinking they could conquer Israel's God. So what should our gift offering be? Now, you may not have thought along these lines, certainly is creative here by the leaders, but what did they say? Middle of verse four, they answered five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. Well, for one plague was on you all and on your lords. Each of you lords that were leaders, let's say the mayors of these Philistine cities, you all had this plague on you at one point or another. So we, to represent each of our leadership, our mayors, we'll send along these five, these 10 golden images. So, five golden tumors. Now, that's even hard to picture. How do you make a golden tumor? Well, I don't know. I can't, I can't tell you. They must have been very creative. 
but then five golden mice. If that was weird enough, why the mice? Well, this does kind of feed into this whole idea of bubonic plague. They realized, they may have realized that mice was what spread the plague and that God used this mice. And then these tumors that were all over them were the actual um, result of their disobedience. So you send, you, maybe you send these golden images, these, these idols to this God to appease him in recognition of the fact that he used these to punish you. And, you know, you might be sitting there thinking, well, why? That's really strange. Well, let me ask you this. Why not? (laughs) What I mean by that is when you are a people that are involved in false worship, one wrong method is as good as another or as bad as another, actually, is what I meant to say. Here's the reality of this, folks. This isn't going to make much sense to us. And even in the Hebrew, it's kind of hard to figure out what exactly this looked like. But that shouldn't really surprise us. The reality of rejection of God and false worship, worship of nature, what's the reality of that? It doesn't make sense. Whether you um, send golden tumors and golden mice to appease a a foreign god or, or whether you believe in evolution where matter comes out of nothing or whether you believe in meditation to Buddha Or whatever, folks, when we move away from worship of the one true God, we've moved away from from all wisdom and even a lot of common sense. Rejection of God is rejection of wisdom and embracement of all lies and errors. Remember how Paul says that as the gospel, as believers, the gospel comes across as foolishness to those that don't believe And that's true. We come across as fools and and as foolishness. But folks, honestly, don't misunderstand. Unbelievers are the ultimate fools. They are. So uh, those that don't choose to worship the one true God, who knows what they're going to come up with in their um, um, uh, their own thinking, their own vain thinking. Why not golden tumors and mice? Could be anything. But isn't it interesting, and with this as well, that doesn't mean that these leaders, that they uh, don't have some some wisdom here or, or understanding. They're not totally misguided. They do understand that they need to give glory to, to the God of Israel. And let's continue to read here. Um, verse 5. Wherefore, ye shall make images of your tumors and images of your mice that mar or ravage the land. That gives us an idea that these mice were um, distributing this plague all over the land. And ye shall give glory unto the God of Israel, and perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and from off of your gods and from off of your land. Remarkable, again, the enemies of Israel understand the need to give the God of Israel glory, to give him weight, to, um, to treat him in an honorable fashion much more than the Israelites do. They understand we need to honor the God of Israel. We have sinned. We have done wrong. 
They, to give him the honor he rightfully deserves is now what these spiritual leaders are recommending to these Philistines. And they do it better than God's own people at this point. But here's something else that they're also going to point out that's interesting. They also know enough of God's dealings with the Egyptians that they do not want to disregard this God and have him deal even more severely with them. They don't have a full understanding of this God of Israel, but they have heard of what he did to the Egyptians in the past. And they remember that the Egyptians were stubbornly resistant to the God, and that didn't go well for the Egyptians. And these spiritual leaders say, we don't want to have happen to us what happened to those Egyptians. Again, interesting from these um, enemies. He says, um, then verse 6, Wherefore then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he wrought wonderfully, or really the verb there says, dealt severely among them that they did not let the people go, and they departed. Even these enemies, these Philistines, know how futile it is to stubbornly resist God. Only Israel would take on, learn these lessons. So what is their solution here as we finish up? Now, therefore, make a new cart and to take two milch kin. Anybody have any idea what those are? Or is it kind? I, I can't remember right now. Um, milk cows. That's a, that's a KJV way of saying milk cows. So take two milk cows on which there come no yoke and tie the cows to the cart and bring their calves home or away from them. Here's their idea. Get a cart, put the ark on it, have two milk cows. That's two female cows then that have never had an oat yoke on them before that have never pulled a wagon, and that have calves that they're nursing. Now, they're going to do a test to see if this plague, because, again, they're still trying to figure out, is this really the power of this all-powerful God, or is this just a coincidence? So they come up with this plan. And take the ark of the Lord, verse 8, and lay it upon the cart, and put the jewels or the figures of gold, which he returned to him for a guilt offering, in a box by the side thereof, and send it away, that it may go. And see if it goeth up by the way of his own coast or his own land to Beth Shemesh. Remember that on the map? Then he hath done us this great evil. Now, why is that important? Two female cows that have never been yoked before, that are nursing calves. Normally, if you just let them go their own way, where are they going to go? Right back to their calves. So they know if these two calves that don't know where they're going, if God takes them to Beth Shemesh, which is the closest Israelite city, where we're going to find out, by the way, is where the Levites, many Levites live that really should know how to take care of the Ark of the Covenant. If these two um, young mamas, cows, go to Beth Shemesh and they don't turn around, then it's obviously the power of a God, of the God in their minds that is in control of this whole thing. If you're going to come up with a test, that's a pretty good test for a bunch of pagans to figure out. And so what happened? Uh, and he says, he's, they say, but if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that smote us. It was uh, basically a coincidence that happened to us. And the men did so and took two, again, milk cows 
and yoke them to the cart and shut up their calves at home so the calves can't come running after them. And they laid the ark of the Lord upon the cart and the box with the mice of gold and the images of their tumors. It had to be really kind of gross, right? And the cows, what, what happened? Is this test going to work? The cows took the straight way to the way of Beth Shemesh. That means they went directly and they went along the highway. They took the major road. They didn't go one way or the other. They never veered off, lowing, mooing as they went. And it's almost like God's pushing them along and they're complaining. No, no, we don't we want to go back to our calves, but they can't. And they turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them unto the border of Beth Shemeth. Did it happen? As God, did, did God take control? Well, of course. These cows do exactly what was expected of them. They don't even look back or veer off the road. And here we have then this obvious sign that God is in control of all of this. Well, we're going to find out next week what happens now, the, all of this is coming to what should be a happy ending at this point. The Ark of the Covenant is returning to Israel. It's going to a city filled with Levites that out of all the people of Israel should know how to handle the Ark of the Covenant. Unfortunately, what we're going to see next week is another example that Israel has not learned its lesson in, in making, being responsible with the things of God but they're still careless in their worship of God. And God is, is really doing a refining in his people's lives to prepare the way for Samuel's leadership and the leadership of the future kings. And God is saying, Israel, you are not going to be allowed to do whatever you want to do in your own hearts any longer. This is a new era, and I'm dealing with you. And God take out his enemies and deal with his enemies. And by the way, didn't he teach the Philistines, the enemies, a lesson about who he was? He did. And he didn't need anybody's help. Folks, let's marvel tonight, even as we pray, that we worship the God, the creator of the universe, who does not need our help, but still seeks to have a relationship with us, that wants to be with us. And folks, let's... Um, commit together to honor him and worship him in the right way, in a careful way, in a way that demonstrates to our community and to our world that God is important. God doesn't need us, but he calls for us to do that anyway. What a great God we serve. Let's make sure that we're proper testimonies of that.